Well, then I guess uh, we can get started. Of course. Uh, hello, uh, Mr. V uh, well, Rabbi Mivasir. Welcome to the show. Um, how are you? Thank you. Very good. Very well. well thank you for being here. And uh, actually, today we're going to talk about uh, IJV, so the organization you are a part of, and uh, JNF. But before that, um, I want to, before jumping into the question of JNF, uh, from my understanding, personally, you are yourself a Jewish rabbi, right? Yes, yes. Okay, and so uh, based on more like the mainstream views, um, it is uh, very counterintuitive for someone of a Jewish community um, to be, uh, I'm quoting from the IGV website here, for uh, Palestine solidarity. So could you explain your views and, and of course, uh, the views of quite a lot of other Jews on the issue of Palestine and Israel? Sure, okay. So that's actually a very big question. Yes. Right, but I'll, I'll do my best. So you just said that it's counterintuitive for Jewish people to be in solidarity with Palestinians. And I think in a way, I understand why you're saying that, because generally we don't see it that much, but it, it, it should not be counterintuitive. I, to me, it should be very um, like obvious. So throughout Jewish history, actually from the very beginnings, I could say in the time of the Bible, you know, one of the primary ideals of Judaism, and I'd say like raison d'etre, you know, the whole purpose of Jewish people is to try to make the world a better place and to actively engage with, with, uh, with justice and peace. You know, I, I'm going to sound like a rabbi here for a minute, but in the Torah and in the Bible, we, we are told that God gave us many, many, many commandments, right? If, if people know anything about Judaism, they would know that Jews have this idea that God commanded us to do many different things. And in the whole Jewish religion, there are, there are two commandments where the Bible uses the word pursue this thing. In other words, don't just do it when the opportunity comes. I can say, an example of that is like, say, keeping the Sabbath. You don't keep the Sabbath on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, but Friday evening when the sun is going down, yes, you have to keep the Sabbath at that time. So that's not pursuing it. That's just doing it when the time comes. But there are two commandments where the Bible says you have to pursue it. You have to get up and go out and make this happen. And one of them the Bible tells us, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And the other one is seek peace and pursue it. So through our tradition, the rabbis have said that those are like so important, justice and peace, that we don't just wait for the opportunity. We have to go and make it happen. So I'm just saying all through centuries and centuries, that's been a central part of Judaism. And then I would say in the late 19th century, you know, the 1880s, the 1890s, social and political conditions, mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, in some ways were so bad. There was so much oppression and such horrible conditions for Jews living there. And a period of nationalism began in Europe. So some Jews got the idea 
that we can solve the problems of oppression of Jewish people and have a Jewish country by Jews going to live in what was the ancestral homeland of the Jews in Palestine. And that began the Zionist movement. And that started a conflict with Palestinians roughly about 100 years ago. And then historically what's happened is that more and more Palestinians were displaced, their land was taken, you know, and then more and more like very oppressive measures were taken against them by Jews, you know. So you're saying it, it, it seems counterintuitive for some Jews to be standing in solidarity with Palestinians. And I'm saying that I think if we're really true to our Jewish ideals, and the vision of what it really even means to be Jewish. It's not just about a kind of a nationalistic ethnic group, but we have a reason of why we're even in this world as Jews, and it is to make the world a better place, a more just and humane and fair place. And if the Palestinians are suffering, then we need to be in solidarity with them. So I think there's a lot of, um, of course, a lot of, uh, different political reasons and historical reasons for why the large established mainstream Jewish organizations don't do that, right? And it makes observers think that it's counterintuitive, but actually I think it's very integral to Judaism to support the Palestinians in their struggles today. Yeah, then uh, my question will now turn to you, since you talk a bit uh, about the Bible, um, and since biblical talking Jewish are for peace and for justice, then why don't more mainstream Jews take on the view of Palestine? Or do you think, what's the, what's the obstacle in preventing them to see this issue? Well, it's a really good question. What, why, why don't more Jews see it this way? So I think historically, for centuries, centuries and centuries, Jews have lived very precarious lives. Jews have been kind of like a visitors or guests in other people's countries, many places all around the world for centuries, and kind of living at the, at the, you know, the tolerance of other people. If other people accepted the Jews, then they would be okay, you know, for that time. But then over and over and over again, something would change, and they would be very oppressed in many different countries. So there's a long history of Jewish um, powerlessness, vulnerability, and victimhood. You know, I think everybody knows, of course, about the Holocaust, which was kind of the epitome of this. You know, about one-third of all the Jews alive in the world were killed uh, about 75 or 80 years ago, which is not very long ago. And before that, it was never done on a huge scale like that. But still, there are many, 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 many examples all through the centuries of entire Jewish communities being expelled or killed and like victimized in so many ways. I'm just saying, so there's a great consciousness among Jewish people of our own vulnerability, which leads to a reaction of wanting like strength and a sense of security because we are defending ourselves, you know, finally after, 
maybe 2,000 years of being victimized. We're not taking it anymore. You know, we have an army. We have a borders. We have our own strength. No one's going to do this to us again. And I, and I would say, sadly, I think that's a kind of a dominant view. You know, your question was, why don't the mainstream Jewish organizations have the approach to Palestine that, like, independent Jewish voices does? So I think there's a, a very understandable reaction to centuries of being oppressed. No kidding. I mean, seriously, it's really, that is a lot of Jewish history. And people are, I think, a, kind of applying selected lessons from the past to the present in a way that's that actually ends up oppressing someone else, right? And they can't kind of break through their own sense of insecurity, you know, to, I would say, to kind of readjust their attitudes to deal with the actual reality that we're in right now. Okay. But I actually, I mean, that might, I think, I think things are changing. I think what, I think what you asked about and what I just described is changing. I think it's largely older generations that have those attitudes, younger generations, you know, I'll just roughly say people your age or so, I don't think they have that, that understanding of things so much. So we'll see. And what we do in independent Jewish voices is we're really trying to change that, right? Like we're advocating for people to like reevaluate that whole analysis and say that, you know, we don't we don't need we don't need to oppress anyone else. We shouldn't oppress anyone else, even just get people to like recognize the reality that Jews are oppressing others, right? But it doesn't need to be that way. A better, you know, the, a better way to live, and actually quite realistic way to live, is try to live in peace and justice. And and we can do that. So we're pushing to change the um, orientation or the attitude of the mainstream Jewish uh, organizations. Well, thank you for the answer. And then just coming on to a bit back and then jumping onto IGV and also regarding the Bible is, um, as you yourself said, um, uh, Israel is, uh, was the ancestral homeland to the Jewish people. So how do you think uh, Israel-Palestine um, can coexist inside uh, this, uh, this place? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it just takes a kind of um, an orientation or an attitude or a vision among people to accept each other, respect each other, and um, just understand that there's, I, although Jews have had a very strong relationship with that place on the earth, you know, going back into like, I, I could say uh, all the way back to the origins. Our, and the, I think our origins are mostly kind of stories that we tell. But all the way back to the very first person who we identify as like a Jewish ancestor is Abraham. You know, and God told Abraham, you know, go forth from where you are to the place where I will show you and I will give that land to you, right? So all the way back, yes, Jews do have that relationship. It's in our liturgy, it's in our prayers. Like many times every day we're praying about the land of Israel. Even though that's very, very central part of Jewish identity, it's not exclusive to the Jews. There's always been other people there, right? You see that in the Bible, always. 
and all through Jewish history in that land, there have been other people. And today there are other people. And it's it makes sense to share it with them. We can live there and they can live there. You know, we can speak our language, they can speak their language. We can learn each other's languages and talk to each other. You know, many countries work like that, right? We can have our holidays, we can have our stories, we can teach our children our culture, and they can do the same thing. It doesn't have to be a conflict. And I think the conflict comes when anyone wants to have either an exclusive society or a dominant society. And I think the wish to dominate actually comes from a fear of being dominated. And I think some of the I just said it before. I think that's a that's a a big part of Ju some Jewish people's motivation is they're very afraid from historical ex experience of being dominated. So they're kind of I'll say overreacting to that. So setting up a kind of a domination so that they don't get dominated. And my my sense is Palestinians who were living there I'll just say 100 years ago they saw that the Jews were saying, we're coming. This is our home. We're coming here. Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of us are coming. And we're going to make this our place. Well, that means they're going to take it away from the Palestinians. So, of course, the Palestinians had a kind of defensive reaction. They don't want their place to be taken away by others. So that sets up a conflict. And if, if we can just say, okay, we're going to live together. We're just going to live together, you know, we'll share it. I mean, your question is, how can we do that? My answer is, we need a change in our our perceptions, our attitudes about each other. And I, again, like to kind of maybe sound like a rabbi, I don't think God intended for humans to divide up the earth in little pieces and say, this is mine and you can't have it, right? It reminds me of like, in my mind, like children in the backseat of a car saying, you know, don't put your foot on my seat, you know, and having a big fight about that. It's like, no, we can just live together. Why not? But reality is today, most people who live there don't feel that way. I think they're very afraid of each other. So what I'm talking about will take just a lot of um, changing attitudes. And actually, I think that's a great role for religion. I think that should be like the, a religious vision that we we share the world, we share everything in it. You know, I can say, if I want to use religious language, one God created created us all. We're all God's children. You know, and if I don't want to use re religious language, I can just say, whatever put us here, however we got here, we all share this earth. Right, the air, the water, the land. The food that grows here, it's for everyone. We should share it. Understood. Then coming directly to the JNF and uh, the question of sharing. So from one of their promotional videos from a JNF, the Jewish National Fund of Canada, there, uh, I, I quote here, it's uh, building is real together. So uh, could you please tell me a bit about uh, who is excluded perhaps by the word together in building uh -huh. is real together? Interesting. So building Israel together, together means 
we Jews here in Canada and our allies, which mostly means Christian evangelicals or politicians that want to get Jewish votes or Jewish support, we together are going to build Israel. And you said, who does that exclude? Well, it excludes the people living there who are not Jews. And to be more clear, of course, that means the Palestinians. So I can say a lot more about that if you want. Yeah, go ahead, please. So the Jewish National Fund was created more than 100 years ago by Jews who wanted to buy land in Palestine for the use of Jewish people. So Jewish people could move there, and they'd have some place to live, and they could have farms, you know. And instead of an individual wealthy person buying a place for themselves to live, this was a kind of a collective, I think, very idealistic thing. People would put their, their pennies and their nickels and dimes together, and after a while, they'd have some thousands of dollars, and they could buy some acres of land, and maybe someone else would go and live there. But the idea was, little by little, make space for Jewish people to live in Palestine. And that is how it started out. And the land that the Jewish National Fund owns is, is held for the Jewish people. It's a collective enterprise. It's not an individual thing. And in the beginning, I think it didn't matter that much that it was exclusive because it actually owned a very small percentage of the land. Most of the land was still in the hands of other people. But that really changed uh, as time went by, especially in, in 1947, 48, 49, when the British mandate over Palestine ended, and th there was really a war to establish who was going to control that land. And the Jews ended up, uh, I would say, controlling about 80% of it, except for what we call the West Bank and Gaza. And at the same time, the Jews who were doing that also expelled most of the Palestinians from their homes destroyed their homes, and took their land. So when they took the land, that land that they took was like assigned to the JNF. So the JNF ended up owning or controlling the vast majority of the land, and it is held exclusively for the Jewish people. So what that means is it's a kind of... Um, kind of a legal mechanism, and I say legal, I mean it's legal by Israeli law, for most of the land to be held in a way that excludes people that are not Jewish. And it's not the government that's doing that, it's actually a private organization, it is a non-profit organization, it's actually in Canada a charitable organization. I would say there's kind of a legal fiction that the government of Israel is not discriminating against its own citizens who aren't Jewish, the 20% of Israel's citizens who are Palestinian Arabs. The government's not discriminating against them. No, it's, a, it's an NGO that owns this land. And the NGO was set up so Jewish people could own the land. So, you know, with a certain kind of logic, oh, that's perfectly legitimate and fine. But the outcome is that 
you know, most of the land in Israel has been taken away and is inaccessible. I don't, I don't mean that, that Arabs are, or Palestinians are not allowed to walk on it or step on it. Of course they can, but they can't own it. They can't rent it. They can't build a house on it. If they, if, if, if a, say a new housing development is being built or a new town is being started, they, they can't live there. They can't. They're just excluded. So, that, so I'm telling you that's some historical background, something very important and relevant to us here in Canada, and maybe even why you're talking with me in particular, is the JNF has branches all around the world in countries where there are Jewish populations. And that idea of build Israel together is they raise funds all over the world, you know, the US, the UK, Australia, whatever, you know, South Africa, France, wherever there's Jewish populations, and Canada. And they always try to set themselves up as a nonprofit, charitable organization. So people who give donations can get uh, tax deductions for it. So in Canada, there's an organization called Jewish National Fund of Canada. It raises millions of dollars every year that go to Israel or Palestine. And it's a, it's a, a charitable organization. If a wealthy person wants to give a million dollars to it, they can deduct a million dollars from the income that they have to pay tax on. So in a way, all Canadian citizens are subsidizing the activities of the Jewish National Fund, which I just described, that actually very clearly discriminates based on ethnic identity, which is against Canadian law. The Jewish National Fund Canada violates Canadian law. It violates Canadian charity law. And this has been um, brought to the attention of the Canada Revenue Agency, the CRA that administers this. They've, they don't do anything about it. So that's something that Canadians can work on to demand actually more accountability from our own government around Canadian law that regulates charitable organizations that get tax exemptions. Like the JNF should not be getting that. You know, I would say if, Cana if people in Canada want to give their money to that, well, maybe they can. Maybe we shouldn't stop them, but they should not be getting a, a, a tax deduction for doing that. Well, I'll just say more. The JNF is directly involved, directly, directly involved in taking away land that Palestinians live on and have lived on for centuries, directly involved in demolishing Palestinians' homes, directly involved in great violence against Palestinians, and um, it is supported by charitable donations from people in Canada. Could you describe, uh, give us a bit more example of this kind of uh, oppression? Anybody really interested can just Google it and you'll find so many examples. But within, I'll just say, kind of the recognized boundaries of Israel in the south, which in Hebrew it's called the Negev, in Arabic they call it Naqab, there are many Bedouin who have lived there for centuries and centuries. They have a very clear understanding of where their land is, where their tribe or their clan has lived for centuries. And the Israeli state, in some cases, recognizes that, but in other cases doesn't recognize it, just, just doesn't at all. Like, 
like these people uh, they almost like they don't exist you know so the jnf has had projects let me step back part not part the goal of the jnf is to establish the jewish people in the land of israel to make it a jewish country so it does that in many 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 places so within the boundaries of israel of course there are still <clears throat> many places where the population is mostly palestinian arabs one of those places is in the south where there's a lot of bedouin so in order to change that the jnf has had many projects going all the way back to the 1940s and even right now to take over land where Bedouin live and declare it. This is, this is a Jewish place and we're going to build a town or a village or a housing development right here because you don't own this land. You don't own it. So we're, we're, we, we own it. We're just taking it. And the JNF does that. And there's some um, the name of the places right now is slipping me a little bit. Um, I want to get it right. I don't want to just make something up. But this is happening right now. There's And the Bedouin are very almost powerless. You know, they can go back, but then the police can take them away. And then, so, and then also in the West Bank, in other words, the area that Israel did not control for the first 19 years of its existence from 1948 to 1967, but did take over in 1967 and continually encroaches on it and takes more and more land away from the Palestinians. This is the West Bank. The JNF is doing the same thing. And I'm sure everyone who pays any attention knows about a place called Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, where right now, I mean, like today, while we're speaking, um, I'll just say this, you know, where this is June, uh, you know, 2021, in this neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, uh, a kind of a subsidiary of JNF is actually expelling Palestinians from homes they've lived in for several generations. When I say a subsidiary, again, it's kind of a legal fiction, so that the JNF's hands are nice and clean and the JNF is not doing this. The JNF created an organization called Himnuta, and Himnuta itself is the one that is building in the West Bank. That way, people in Canada can give money to the JNF, and the JNF can say, oh, we're not doing anything in the West Bank. Our hands are completely clean in the West Bank. We only do things inside Israel proper, inside the boundary from 67. We don't mess around with the West Bank. But JNF set up a, a, a totally controlled subsidiary organization that it funds, it, it, it channels funding to it called Himnuta, and Himnuta does that. So it's kind of complex. If anybody wants to dig into it, you can. It's not hard to research this stuff. And even if you go to the Independent Jewish Voices website, you know, you can find we have a tab on the website about the JNF and you can get lots of information. People have been struggling with this for decades in many different ways and part of what i mean is legal ways in the different countries where there are these nonprofit charitable organizations set up to collect funds to do this so in canada people have been dealing with this for decades trying 
to get the Canada Revenue Agency to actually enforce our own laws and delist it as a uh, charitable organization. So the information is available. Since we were already talking a lot about uh, JNF, let's talk about the campaign uh, hashtag Stop JNF Canada, which IJV is launching. And before, and so let's talk a bit about uh, Canada Park. So uh, for listeners of this episode, they might not have seen it, so they can go ahead and Google I Along Canada Park. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, it is really quite beautiful if you look just at the images mm. of the park itself. Uh, so however, yeah. And however, David Houghton, uh, award-winning CBC foreign correspondent and author, wrote uh, that I quote here, uh, Today, it, or the park, remains a black mark on our country's reputation, meaning Canada's reputation, that a park established with Canadian funding should have been built on a site where ethnic cleansing took place. So uh, could you explain a bit what he uh, means by that statement, especially the, the ethnic yeah. cleansing part? Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So actually what happened is the Six-Day War was in June. 1967 and now we're in june 2021 so that's 74 years ago and that was when israel took the rest of palestine it, it conquered the west bank and there was a place where there were three three palestinian villages one called imwas oh man i'm not that prepared for these these details there was one called nuba can't remember the name of the third one right now, just maybe a little nervous talking with you and knowing that I'm being recorded and people are going to listen, but that doesn't matter. So there was a place where the Israeli army just took over these three villages without a shot being fired. In other words, there were thousands of Palestinians living in their own homes and villages that had schools and shops and you know, gardens, there were mosques, perhaps there were churches, and the Israeli army came in, expelled everyone, every single person was driven out, and their homes and everything were dynamited and bulldozed, literally wiped off the face of the earth into piles of rubble. You can't just leave piles of rubble lying around, and the JNF uh, planted trees, and then did some very nice like landscape architecture to turn it into a lovely park. And you can go there today. And there's picnic tables, bicycle trails, little gardens and ponds. And like that writer said, it's actually on the surface, it's very beautiful. But even if you say the surface, if you look closely, you can see places where rebar is sticking out of the surface. You can see stones are obviously used for building buildings you know they're cut shaped into blocks and squares so you can see obviously if you know what you're looking at and you care to look that there were people's homes there and it was like i said it was dynamited bulldozed and then covered up and i guess what's relevant to this conversation with us here is the the money to pay for doing that came from charitable donations from people in Canada. And, and shocking to me today is there were Canadian government funds, there were Canadian municipalities that donated municipal tax money to build this park. And then if you think, why did that, why was that done? So I would say there's a very, very influential 
lobby in Canada, as in other countries like the US, the UK, Australia, and elsewhere, promoting the idea that Israel is just a wonderful, humanitarian, democratic country, shares our values, and that's partially based on, I think, valid sympathy for the Jews following the Holocaust and literally centuries of oppression by the very same parts of society that created Canada, you know, like who created Canada, they were also the same people who oppressed the Jews in Europe. So there's a kind of a sympathy factor there. And I think there's also a kind of a, a mystique about the Jews being descended from the people in the Bible. So a lot of uh, Christians have this, I would say, kind of fantasy idea about who the Jews are and a kind of romantic religious fantasy about what it means for the Jews to go back to the land of the Bible and live there. You know, and I also think that in, in a kind of perverted way to talk about Israel as having shared values with Canada, Israel, like Canada, actually is truly a settler colonial society where people came from elsewhere, took over, drove out the people who were there before, and are building a very nice country. So this Canada Park was like a microcosm of that. It was this little place, you know, I don't know how many acres, I don't remember, you can look that up. But why would, for example, I'm making this up, it's not specifically true, but you can look up the details. Why would Saskatoon or Montreal or Toronto donate public money from their municipal budget to build a park outside the pre-1967 boundaries of Israel on top of the intentionally destroyed houses and shops and mosques and schools of three Palestinian villages. What is going on in Canada that city councils would vote to do that, right? I think that's a really important question for Canadians. That was maybe 60 or 65 years ago. And a more important question is what's happening today? Why does Israel have such impunity that it can continue to violate you know, basic standards of human rights, democracy, equality, and even violate Canadian law with complete impunity? Um, so, you know, I think that's why you're asking these questions from, you know, something happened close to 75 years ago, and we can talk about the history of it, but what's really important is what's happening right now. And if we don't change it, what's going to continue, you know, in the coming years and decades? And I think it's really like a great, like moral challenge to us Canadians living here now to make that stop, you know, so Canada's no longer really complicit. So again, if you said it, if anyone's interested, they can look up, it's called Canada Park. Sometimes a Hebrew word is thrown in there, the word Ayalon, a-Y-A-L-O-N, that's a place name. And again, if anybody wants to get started on that, they can go to the Independent Jewish Voices website, and we have a tab about Canada Park, and you can learn about it. And there was a very good CBC documentary about it many years ago. The CBC, for years and years and years, has completely suppressed discussion about the injustices to the Palestinians. That's been excluded from CBC reportage about the world. 
Um, but years ago, there was a documentary about Canada Park, and it's worth watching. I'll just add one more thing. There's a there's a man who's now well into his 80s who lives in Halifax, who was born and raised in one of those villages. And when he was a young teenager, it, it, it was what he experienced this. His he was driven out of his home. I don't remember if it was in the village called Nuba or Imwas. The other one was called Yalu. But he lived there. He was driven out of his home. His whole family was driven out. One of his uncles was in the house when it was demolished and his uncle was killed. This is his personal story. Um, his name is Ismail Zaid, and he became a doctor. He was a pathologist. He's lived in Halifax for maybe, I don't know, 45 or 50 years. He's retired. He's way older than I am. And he, he reported this over and over again to the Canada Revenue Agency about the ongoing activities of the JNF from the 1940s when it took over so much land to 1967 when the, you can see photographs of bulldozers with JNF logos on them bulldozing his village that he lived in until that day when the Israeli army drove him and his family out. He's reported it over and over again to the Canada Revenue Agency that has done absolutely nothing, nothing. Like closes its eyes, won't respond, won't talk about it, right? So again, that's a question for us Canadians living here now. Like how do we, how do we make the Canadian government do the right thing in this regard? Okay, so... Um, since you talk about uh, a lot about destruction of Palestinian uh, lands by the JNF, so yeah. I'm going back to the question of uh, reforestation projects. So, according to uh, Maram Benvenisti, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, a former deputy mayor of Jerusalem and a political scientist, he says projects like Canada Park or other reforestation projects of its kind is used to appropriate Palestinian lands. So, uh, do you agree? Disagree? I guess you agree with it, but. Um, can you give us some proof and some examples of it? Well, you've, you've, we've already talked about, first of all, Meron Benvenisti. He knew what he was talking about. He was born and raised in Israel. You just said he was deputy mayor of Jerusalem. He was a political scientist. Uh, and for decades, he wrote about this and talked about it. So the evidence is there. Something I learned very interesting for me. I was in rabbinical school training to become a rabbi. And one of the courses that I took in rabbinical school was a class about contemporary Israeli literature. Very interesting. I love reading it. I love it. One of the stories that we read was a story written by a very well-known Israeli author who's usually called in English, I think it's called A.B. Yehoshua. In Hebrew, we call him Aleph Beit Yehoshua. And he wrote a story, I think in the 1960s, in Hebrew, it's called Mul Hayarot. Ugh, I wish I had the name that it's translated into in English, but it means across from the forest, or almost like looking at the forest. But this whole story, there's a story about a young man, young Jewish man, growing up in Haifa, and is a young Israeli living in Haifa, 
and his life gets kind of messed up, whatever, his girlfriend breaks up with him, he loses his job, you know, he's going through one of these things that people go through from time to time. His life falls apart. He doesn't know what to do with himself. So he gets a job being like a forest fire lookout guy. And he has to sit in a tower in a forest and just watch out for smoke. That's what he does all day, every day. And he gets curious about the forest. So he starts looking around in the forest and he can see in the forest, which is a new forest, not an old forest. You know, it's like a planted forest. He can see, like I said, all these building stones and bits and pieces of houses in the ground under the trees where, let's say, if you drive by or you just aren't paying attention, you wouldn't see them. You would just see trees. But he saw this. And then one day he sees smoke. And that's like, oh, finally, I can like do my job. This is what I'm here for, you know. But he goes to where the smoke is coming from, and he finds an old Arab man who set fire to the forest to burn it down so that you could see what the forest was hiding. So you asked me about oh, the proof that what Miron Benvenisti said is true. Well, actually, nobody needs to prove what he, what he said was true because it is true. And, but what I'm saying to you right now is that this story written by Aleph Beit Yoshua or A.B. Yoshua, it's kind of part of the modern Israeli literary canon. If I was reading it in rabbinical school in Philadelphia, you can be sure that Israelis read it. It's very popular. It was very controversial. As a writer, he was one of like the leading writers in Israel totally well-known by anyone who would read any literature, they would know him. The story is known. So the, the fact that the Israelis, the JNF, demolished literally hundreds of Palestinian villages in 1948 and 49, and the following years, it took a while to demolish that many, and then planted forests on top of them to hide it, under the guise of reforesting. What do you mean reforesting? Like when were there ever forests there before? It's not like actually reforesting. It was just hiding. But that the concept, the awareness of that, that's in Israeli society. You know, we who live here in Canada wouldn't know about that. Then if you hear about it, like, oh, you know, oh, I, I was listening to this podcast and this guy said that thing, this Israeli guy said that thing. Is that really true? Oh, Rabbi Mivaser, can you give me some proof of that? Well, anybody growing up in Israel is not like willfully, you know, trying so hard not to see that, like just, you know, breaking their head in denial. They know that. I'm just telling you, that was written in a very, very widely read, actually very controversial story in the 1960s. So everybody knows that. You see it wherever you go. And it's happening right now, right, right, right now. If you ever drive into Jerusalem from the coast, say from Tel Aviv, just before you get into Jerusalem, on the left-hand side of the road, there's beautiful hills and mountains and there's a beautiful place where there's all down the side of a hill there's many 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 old stone buildings with arches and domes that are covered by vines and they're kind of falling into disrepair because they have been 
empty of the people that built them and lived in them for almost 75 years. And that's a village called Lifta. And Lifta was a thriving Palestinian village. I know people who lived there. I met them. I know the children and grandchildren of people who lived there. It's a beautiful village. And it was not demolished. It's just been left empty. And now groups like the JNF are pushing plans to like just demolish it and build like a housing development there. You know, so uh, again, we're you're kind of asking me some historical questions. But I would say the reason the history is important is because it's continuing right now. Right? So we again, if there's anything we can do to change the trend of history and to shift like the kind of the power balance or what's allowed to go on, you know, we need to do that. So it's good to understand the history, but don't just leave it in the past. We need to think what's going on right now, what's going to be happening in the coming years if we don't somehow apply ourselves to to change it. And again, Canada is totally complicit. I talked before about how the Jewish National Fund is able to raise millions of dollars with tax deductions that we're all subsidizing, but also Canada gives Israel diplomatic cover. Like when resolutions come up in the UN or the UN Security Council, you know, talking about these human rights violations and land theft and violations of international law and the Geneva Conventions, it's like absolutely clear that Israel's doing all these things. If you look at the voting record, you know, the countries that vote against these resolutions, it's usually Israel, the United States, you know, Micronesia, you know, Palau, I'm making this up. Canada, why does Canada do that? Why does Canada consistently on this question come down on the wrong side? Who is it that makes those decisions? And then who is it that elects those people to office over and over and over again? So is that a time that we Canadian voters can do something about this, like make this an issue and say that we want to elect into con to um, parliament, you know, people who will take a stand for justice and for what's right on this issue and, you know, stop giving Israel this kind of impunity. So just relate it back to what you asked me and I'm done saying like, there is a lot that we can do about this now.